Howdy, folks. Before we start this session of Bebop Tabletop, we just want to say thanks to all our listeners, Twitter followers, and everyone who supported us along the journey. If you like what you've been hearing, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review on your listening app of choice. It would help us out more than a sack full of oolongs. Now, hit it. Three, two, one. This is Bebop Tabletop, the podcast that's turning each episode of Cowboy Bebop into a tabletop RPG. I'm Andrew Wu. I'm Lee Jo John. And together, we're remixing the characters, music, and themes into a game you can play. Let's jam. Hello, Rock Lobsters. Welcome to Session 12. 12 of Bebop Tabletop, the first of 2022. This week, we're talking about toys in the attic. Session 11 of Cowboy Bebop. With me, as always, is Lee Joe. Lee Joe, how are you doing this year? I'm hoping it's slightly better than the previous one. Oh, slightly. That's a tall order, isn't it? If I can get that bar any lower, I would. (laughs) With us this week, we have a special guest, Matt DiCarlo. Hey, guys. How are you doing today? Oh, you know, I'm hanging in. Is your New Year bar also just slightly higher? Uh... (laughs) I'll I'll settle for moderately better. Okay. All right. Okay. Let's I, let's make that our motto for the new year, 2022, moderately better. <laughs> uh, Matt, <laughs> you're you're here today because uh, you are a very good, very old friend of mine at this point, probably, uh, depending on how we reckon time. Yeah. You're also. I, I think we we talked recently and. I, you know, in all this time, I had never realized that you uh, watched any anime, first of all, nor had I realized you watched any Cowboy Bebop. And when I found that, I was like, oh, yeah, you're, you'd be a perfect fit for this show because we're a bunch of nerds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll slide right in. Uh, we, yeah, I, I, watched, um, I watched Bebop, I think, in high school on some, like, really horrible quality bootlegs that a... Uh, <laughs> Somebody gave me on a hard drive, <laughs> like a big hard drive <laughs> full of anime. And it was the only thing that I enjoyed on the entire pile of bootleg anime. <laughs> that feels like the early 2000s, yeah. Yeah, neighborhood of like 2000, 2001. Okay, yeah. Like, like I'm thinking like uh, the things I liked at that time were maybe like a Trigon or maybe like a uh, – Yep. Uh, maybe like a Gundam wing around that time? You like, know, that, that was definitely that was the flavor. It was uh it was Bebop, it was Trigun, it was yeah, I guess, Outlaw Star. Remember Outlaw Star? <laughs> I, I think I had a copy of the Gundam Wing movie, but hadn't seen the show. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Uh, in any case, I have not thought about any of those other shows in like twenty years. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, you could be like me and just keep watching and reading One Piece because it's never going <laughs> to happen. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like uh, Matt and I also, we play a game together with another friend of ours in Dungeons and Dragons. We're doing a Salt Marsh campaign right now. I'm honestly very jealous of your character because that is just just a brilliant, <laughs> fun it's, thing to play. Yeah, it came out well this time. I've tried to play sort of this character before. Uh, I, I've played... I've played a fair amount of D&D in my time, and sometimes you try to make somebody, and you've got kind of the seed of it, and you don't quite get mm-hmm. it right, and it's uh, it's always fun to kind of 
try it again in a new campaign a couple years down the road. Mm -hmm. See if you can iterate on it. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Dolph? Yeah, Dolph is uh, <laughs> Dolph is a half elf himbo. His his dad owns a boat dealership, and. The main things that Dolph cares about are having a good tan and fighting anyone who, uh, I don't know, is in proximity. <laughs> <laughs> it's working out really, really yeah. well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you got to say one thing about 5e is it really promotes himboism, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a, technically a monk, though there's nothing monk-like about him except for the unarmed <laughs> fighting. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about uh, your experience with other role-playing systems. Yeah, I've played a little bit of all kinds of stuff. Uh, I played very briefly Dungeons & Dragons in high school and mm. kind of bounced off it, honestly. That was – man, I don't remember even if it was AD&D or 3.0 or who knows. But didn't really stick and then – Ended up with in a group of theater kids actually playing Vampire the Masquerade in a campaign that ran for, I don't know, like two years and oh, never went anywhere. <laughs> but we had a lot of fun with it. And then uh, kind of dropped off for a while. And then I went to a college that had a, uh, a game design elective. That was taught by Dave Arneson, the co-creator of Dungeons and & Dragons. And that kind of got me back into the idea of role-playing. Though, again, we didn't end up playing D&D. &D. We played Shadowrun and uh, what, was the, uh, what was the Star Wars role-playing game? Oh, there, um, there was a Star Wars role-playing game. Was it just yeah. called the Star Wars role-playing game? It probably I, there was. There were two, I think, right? One was the old D6 system, and I think later there was a it, D20 system. It was system. the D20 one. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, graduated and fell out of it again, and then uh, mm -hmm. ended up with our mutual friend who we're playing with now uh, attempting to play Shadowrun a couple of times <laughs> and failing, and then... And then, like, a couple of years ago, all of these, like, little kind of indie RPGs started popping up, and they're all real focused more on storytelling, the mechanics, which was mm -hmm. always kind of the part I liked anyways. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so with, with the exception of this one D&D &D campaign that we've been doing right now, like, most of it recently has been, like, one-offs and, uh, like, heists and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of that trend, right? Like that the that this space has just kind of uh, I don't know if like bloomed or exploded is the right word, but like this idea that like oh there's there's more than D and D is uh, I think one of the things I noticed when with us trying to start up this project was that uh, we went through the same exact phases everyone goes through of seeing like oh I didn't I, you know Dungeons and Dragons was fun except for all these parts I don't like what if we played a game that didn't have any of those parts and like every designer I feel like goes through exactly that phase like oh this system that I I just don't like it these things let's just do something new instead and it seems like a lot of people are doing that now which is great like uh, we we have a lot of room for expression in here. Yeah, the thing that I love about so many of the sort of modern indie RPGs is the idea of like failing forward 
that mm. did like old school D&D is so focused on, you know, you got to make this roll or else you didn't unlock the door and now you're just, I don't know, I guess roll again <laughs> until you unlock yeah. the door. <laughs> I found like I found out that's that's a thing in like original D and D where yeah you could keep trying it but then every time you try it there's a chance for some encounter a chance mm-hmm. for some failure it was built in that you just keep trying it again <laughs> just just roll again you need to unlock that door please <laughs> I mean it makes sense to a degree where like obviously you can't just let everybody succeed all the time and you know it can't always be a happy ending all the time. But yeah, some of the mechanics of D&D and some of the mechanics of even, you know, other popular role-playing games are not perfect. When you, as a GM, are trying to follow the rule of cool, it does help when you don't ha- when your players don't have to improvise that much. Where, oh, this specific spell doesn't work that way, and they want it to work this way. And as a lenient DM, I'm like, okay, sure, go ahead, try it. But it would be nice if the system allowed for that kind of creativity. And that's usually my only issue with D&D. Because I, I actually do like some of the rigidity of the system. Uh, and I, obviously I love the world and the you know the mm-hmm. lore that is, so, is associated with it. Um, but, you know, it isn't perfect. But, I mean, what is? For sure. And I do feel like it's gotten much better. Uh, mm-hmm. Fifth edition, this is my first long-term experience with it in this game that I'm in right now. And it's it's definitely more I, – I don't even know what the it, – it's not that it's friendlier. It's that it's it's just more improvisational. It, it will let you play mm-hmm. uh, instead of forcing you down a certain path. Like it's, hey, it rewards your creativity. Yeah, we, we got rid of feats and replaced them with – sort of vaguer notions of things that you can be good at in categories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does remind me that I would like to play a Call of Cthulhu at some point where it's exactly the opposite, where it's like, no, here are your exact <laughs> list of a thousand skills. Good luck. <laughs> are you all ready for this week's episode summary? First summary of the year. Let's ring in the new year. A slow day on the bebop as Jet loses his underwear gambling with Faye. Soon, he loses much more than that as a creature attacks him by a fridge in the attic. Spike suggests some herbal remedies for Jet's wounds when suddenly, Jet falls unconscious. Ed suggests it's an alien bite, Spike thinks it's a mutant, and Faye thinks it's a good time for a bath. They're all wrong, and Faye is bitten next. Spike and Ed gear up to hunt the creature. Ed sees a stranger and follows him, but when Ayn is bitten, Spike rescues the pooch. Spike puts the ship on autopilot and manages to torch the thing with a flamethrower. Remembering the year-old Ganymede rock lobster he left in the fridge, he throws it out the airlock just as he is attacked by the creature. A sleeping Ed eats the creature, and Tchaikovsky plays over the sleeping crew. Uh, I love that at the end of the episode, if you listen to the tag, for the preview for the next episode, Ed mentions that everybody's dead and come back next week for a brand new show called Cowgirl Ed. Uh, that's that's my canon now. Like, this show is over. It's ended. <laughs> Cowboy Bebop, they all died in space. The rest of the show is a dream. Yeah. <laughs> like Saint, or Saint Nowhere, I think is the one. Right? Oh, the, the Tommy Westfall universe where everything's inside like a snow globe? Yeah. <laughs> that's the one, yeah. Uh, but I have to say, like, I know they uh, they want, you know, Spike has a kind of a, a reliance on herbal remedies mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of non-traditional medicine. Is a lizard but, like, an herb? <laughs> <laughs> when you mash it up well enough, I guess so. 
Yeah, you grind it up, you boil it, suddenly you got a tea going, I guess. Because <laughs> that's how that works. <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a weird episode. This this f- kind of falls out of the general cadence of the rest of the mm-hmm. show in a couple of interesting ways. The music is the first thing that grabbed me, is that the show generally is so like driven by that Yoko Kano jazz score. And there's no jazz in this episode at all mm. past the opening credits. Uh, there's like a little like kind of two-note atonal thing that they use to build tension. And then there's the Waltz of the Flowers over the final scene. But there's no other music in the episode. It, it's a quiet like menace constantly, right? There's a lot of like almost like ASMR-y like skittery sounds. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of this – this sense of like almost like a claustrophobic noise, right? Like it's, yeah, no, none of the none of the fun, <laughs> right? None of none of that swing. I think that kind of goes hand in hand with the whole idea that this episode is not like our usual jazzy, you know, bounty hunting episodes. This downtime episode, if you would, mm-hmm. uh, definitely definitely grabs more horror than anything else. Yeah, it's in in RPG terms, it does. It feels like a one shot that you do in the middle of a long campaign where maybe you know maybe somebody's missing this week. Uh, mm-hmm. Somebody's got the flu or couldn't make it, and so we're gonna do. Uh, we've got this little horror fun thing that we're gonna do in in an off week so that we don't have to skip entirely. It, it's like it's it's somewhere between like a beach episode and. And like, uh, like calling the whole thing off, right? And playing playing a different game instead, right? Somewhere <laughs> in between that. <laughs> and it's uh, the other thing that the the episode does that doesn't feel quite like the rest of Bebop is the that is the lesson thing mm-hmm. that they do throughout it, where there's almost like this over narration of uh, of each character telling you some kind of mostly nonsensical life lesson <laughs> that they think is important to <laughs> succeed. Yeah. I actually, is this, as far as I'm aware, this is the only time that the crew, the Bebop, like talks directly to the audience outside of like previews for the next episode. Is is that true? I wanted to say that, but I haven't watched the rest of the show recently <laughs> enough to be sure. <laughs> I, I can't think uh, of an Well, instance. there's also the whole, uh, Jet does kind of a... Uh, captain's log, Star Trek sort of thing at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm not sure if that's why they went with this method, but yeah, it. Th- I do believe that this is really the only time they directly talk to us, or really to someone who's going to listen to this log. All these lessons are a little bit kind of silly, but to be fair, uh, I think that all of them, even the whole idea of don't leave things in the fridge, all kind of correlate with these characters' main motivations and their, you know their worldview. That's definitely the most uh, applicable lesson to our the, our lives, if we're going to take something <laughs> away from this. After a couple of years of quarantine here, yeah, I think, I think it's important to remember to flush that out every now and then. <laughs> so, as we've been saying, this is a very strange episode in the uh, opus of Cowboy Bebop so far, where 
this looks more like a one-shot. This is a bottle episode. This is a, a downtime episode. And one of the things we wanted to do this week was look at our system that we've built so far and kind of try to figure out what still fits with an episode like this and what doesn't quite work anymore, right? Like, we built our mechanics around kind of five main phases of play, like five main beats of a story. The brief, the hunt, the twist, the score, and the reckoning. And this episode kind of breaks that mold. Like, I think we can find ways to squeeze things into that mold or figure out ways to, like, see how that still can happen. Like, see see how those phases still work in an episode like this. Yeah, I think that if, if you kind of squint your eyes a little bit, you can fit the beginning of the episode into the brief. Uh, Jet's bitten by something that leaves mm-hmm. a weird purple pulsing blob on his neck and mm-hmm. they turn to the magic analyzer machine and uh and it tells them it doesn't know what it is and so they start right. theorizing yeah, that, that's their that's kind of like their bounty information right oh when we uh, you know who was it somebody thought it was a rat right or early on when when jet calls everybody he hits the alarm oh i think it's the first time we see that like that blaring red alert alarm too right uh, we've never used that mm-hmm. before and mm-hmm. you know he calls them all in on this huge emergency and everyone sees a rat and they're like oh this is nothing right so that's that's your your bounty information. Um, Jet got bit by a rat, <laughs> right? That's your brief. Yeah, the the hunt, the twist, and the score mm-hmm. are kind of a little blurrier. It this is a less, you know, they they don't go anywhere. The whole episode takes place on the ship, which traditionally is sort of their safe haven between missions, and now it's uh, in, in kind of a, mm-hmm. an alien like sense. It is kind of the adversary here. Um, it, it goes from being a place where they are, you know, comfortable to being a place where they are threatened. Yeah, the scene with Spike finding Ayn is what I'm thinking of right now, right? He finds Ayn in, like, a vent, and you know, knowing he's, like, trapped in, like, a one-way corridor, and, you know, he's got the IR goggles mm-hmm. on, and he just sees this thing coming at him, right? Like, that is that moment of... And, like, he's, like, fighting with a ladder or, like, a hatch or something to try to escape. That is, yeah, that, that is that corruption of home, right? Like, this is, this is a place of danger now. This has absolutely nothing to do with what you guys said, but I just got the thought. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Gravity is funny in this ship. Mm-hmm. The, they are constantly turning it off and on. Or at least Spike was, and so the the concept that the idea that that you could be doing whatever, <laughs> you could be taking a bath, and then suddenly someone turns off the gravity is uh, is somewhat terrifying. <laughs> uh, and then I was just thinking about like the rats, like where would they hole up? And when the gravity turns off, now you got some floating rats. It's a it's a weird. I mean, it's a weird kind of concept. Now, obviously. Uh, I'm sure that even rats can get adjusted to the occasional <laughs> zero Gs, but... We know they like, can, thanks to the efforts of uh, the International Space Station crew. <laughs> yeah, like, I think we've seen... So, you know, I love those shots in this room, and it's a very 2001 kind of reference. 
uh, the shots of the the rotating room, right? There, uh, clearly, a section of the ship spins to generate that gravity, and I, I think I think we've seen that like the bridge, the front of the ship is always no gravity, is always zero g, even though like how they move in there is not very. Uh, zero G. They move like almost always they move like, oh, what is it? The, the famous shot is like uh, Spike is smoking a cigarette mm-hmm. right, in zero G because uh, Jet just floated it over to him and the smoke still goes up, right? And he's like, well, which way is up? Why does that make any sense? That doesn't, that's not how this works. You don't look uh, cool smoking anymore if you're just engulfed in a cloud. It's <laughs> just a ball of smoke, yeah. <laughs> With you at the center of the radius. Uh but yeah, so I, I think the the bridge is always zero G and then the crew quarters are somewhere in the back and there's like that that spinny room is where they always have to go through. I never I, I don't I guess the spinny room maybe it's connected to the gravity generation because it does now that I'm thinking about it like I guess it does stop when he turns off the gravity. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the ship doesn't spin and it has gravity. <laughs> it it's not round at all either right like it i i have no you know unlike say like the firefly in firefly mm-hmm. uh where there is a very like distinct sense of how the ship is laid out like laid out in the show and they, they yeah very much try to make it feel real i have no right? sense of the geography of the bebop exactly like it it doesn't take up like oh here's the couch in the living room cool here's the showers here's I don't remember if we see any bedrooms, right? I assume they have bedrooms. Uh, we've seen the cockpit a little bit, but that's it, right? Oh, this this is one, this is the first episode where we see there's an attic, right? What is an attic? Is it like upstairs? Is that why it's an attic? Well, Spike calls it the <laughs> stock room when he's doing his narration mm. at the end. It seems more like a cargo hold than anything else, but it's hard. It's honestly hard to say. Uh I mean, this is one of those things where if I was a GM, I'd be like, yeah, you've got a place where you leave stuff, you know? <laughs> it's your deck of holding. <laughs> it's, a, it's a flight deck of holding, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that fits in well with our game where we don't really have a physical space that we're usually playing with, right? We're not – we're trying to break away from the wargaming model where you have – you know, people on a map mm-hmm. that are moving five squares at a time, right? Think, things like that are, uh, yeah, uh, having your ships just be kind of a a collection of ideas that way, I think fits in pretty well with how the bebop works. Yeah, for sure. I still would like to, at some point, flesh out the areas of a ship, mostly because I think that's the easiest way to give rewards, is to upgrade your you know, your your sleeping quarters, your kitchen, that sort of thing. Uh, but for the time being, and for the most part, even if you've got certain areas fleshed out, I mean, people are going to make ships the way they're going to want to make ships, which is usually insane. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I was just thinking, too, was that, you know, we, we talk about rewards and upgrades to your ship. Like, at some point, somebody's going to buy a fridge, right? Like, that is just... <laughs> That's just one of the upgrades now. And a rock lobster. Yeah. <laughs> it's a delicacy, man. You got to try it once in a while. Better than the sea rat. <laughs> sea rat's extinct, <laughs> I think. So, <laughs> Going back to the phases of play, right? Like, I think this episode's interesting in that uh, there is no reckoning, right? Like the end of this episode is 
everybody dies, right? This is the ultimate, like, part. It's a TPK. <laughs> I, I guess. Um, it, I think that that sort of feeds further into the idea of this as a, a one-shot or a bottle campaign is that mm-hmm. you you don't really get anything out of it at the end, but mm-hmm. you got to – you got to sort of experiment with maybe a new bit of gameplay with your familiar characters mm-hmm. without any particularly lasting consequence if you didn't do a great job at it. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's value in that kind of thing in letting your players, you know, kind of take risks that maybe they wouldn't otherwise because they're worried about losing progress. Interesting. Yeah. Like that. that is a really cool motivator. Right, like I think, uh, specifically in Dungeons and Dragons, one thing that, and I don't know if this is just because this is how I end up playing or the parties that I'm with play, uh, but in particular, a thing that kind of annoys me is the planning mm-hmm. aspect, like, and not like, like the DM planning a campaign. No, that stuff's good. Please keep doing that. Uh, but but things like the party saying, oh, in that next room, there's a big boss. And we all better hunker down here and talk about all of our options before we finally choose to do something, right? And, yeah, encouraging the opposite of that. Encouraging, hey, try something fun and weird. And, yeah, there'll be consequences, but there'll be fun con- fun sequences? That's not a word. <laughs> it could be. But, but like, you know, the, this idea of, like, I, I think, like, the, the philosophy behind the bottoming out mechanic mm-hmm. is that is that, hey, you tried something, it didn't work, but you got a cool story and a cool scar and this new ability, right, just because of it, because you tried something weird, right? You failed cool, so keep it up. <laughs> well, that's kind of the whole point of our Gambit system, right? It's uh, we, we want to encourage high-risk, high-reward plays. You know, we don't want to take the safe, I hit them with my optimal battle axe, they do. I do as m- the optimal amount of damage, and then I I ready for ready to get hit by in turn. You know, um, again, that's D and D is good for a lot of things, but you know the the war the war game of it all is can be tedious when you have you know more than a couple players where everybody has to you know you may have to wait <laughs> forty five minutes for your turn again. You know, <laughs> and the thing that I think that. That I've always enjoyed about sessions where you kind of know that there's an there's a defined end to it is that nobody is saving spells. Mm. You everybody is just doing the stuff they can do in you know a a fun way that because you know that at the end of it there you're going to get a break. Uh, I always think of like the wand with three uses right. that I will never use. Just because it's only got three, I might need them tomorrow. <laughs> I've got this potion yeah. that I'm never going to use. I've got use, a scrying right? stone I, that I can use once a week. It's like I, I, I don't know what to use <laughs> it on. <laughs> I, one of the campaigns that I run, I have a cleric with a necklace of fireballs. Uh, he keeps courting it. And he never uses it. I assume he'll use it when it's, uh, the, the danger is high enough. But we had a Christmas one shot, and he went hog wild with it. So it was great. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he melted a bunch of snowmen. So it was 
super. I mean, it's great. It as a as a DM, I'm always happy to see my players use the things I give them, uh, especially when it is to thwart me. Uh, but <laughs> but you know, obviously. Uh, I understand the urge to hoard everything. I do it in all my video games. I do it. I'll do it in the RPGs too. But you gotta use them sometimes. If you don't, they turn into some sort of weird fungal colony in the fridge and then kill you. Ooh, ooh, I love that. Yeah, you I don't... think that's a great consequence. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're, yeah, we get, with that necklace of fireball, eventually it, it turns sentient and then starts setting things on fire in your inventory. <laughs> right? Like it's. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing about bottle episodes, you know, swerving back to the other topic at hand, bottle episodes are great for role playing and for character motivation and for just developing who you are. I I am also a proponent of, you know, some people talk about how they've had a whole session without rolling any dice and it was the best thing ever. I'm not quite there with roleplay. Like I, I still think that you gotta do some you gotta do some of the role playing the game aspects of the role playing game, sorry. Um but sometimes the best scenes, the best moments you can have in a tabletop role playing game are just, you know, two people interacting with each other and uh you know that per- interpersonal drama really does uh become a real fun thing if you let it bloom if you give it time to breathe and i think that's one of the things about downtime that can really be interesting is just the uh, watching these characters grow into people or or lose their underwear Right, or like lose it. their underwear, you know. And <laughs> you think you think Jet would would have stopped, you know, several games before. You know, I think the thing that that kills me is he's not dumb. Honestly, he should probably be the smartest guy on the, <laughs> or the, at least the most worldwide guy on the crew. And yet he literally bets everything, you know, even his underpants. So that's, I mean, it's it's silly. But it's it, it's always one of those things I'm like, hmm, Jet, you know better, bud. I love that Spike knows about the loaded dice and just doesn't tell him. <laughs> yeah, he he confronts Faye first, right? And says, hey, give him his clothes back. And she suggests that she will rent them to him. <laughs> Spike's done that a couple of times. He's aware of cheats and, you know, even the first time he meets Faye, uh, she's cheating to make him lose, if I remember correctly. And he doesn't remark about it at all until she uh, demands the, you know, the tip of that token, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's Spike in a nutshell. And again, it's one of those things where Spike is doing all the main character things here. He's not only is he, for some reason, using the computer, which for Radical Ed, the person who pretty much lives and breeds computers not using the computer, weird, but I mean, that's Radical Ed for you. <laughs> And then the whole, like, kind of commando, uh, you know, he, he loads up on a bunch of weapons and using the IR device. Like, he's he's doing it all. He saves the crew, sort of, <laughs> even though I guess technically Ed saved the crew. Unclear. <laughs> uh, one of the things I'd forgotten in all these years, uh, you know, I haven't watched this episode before now for maybe 10, 15 years. And, you know, I remember they all die at the end of this episode or they're all, you know, out, out, unconscious at the end of this episode. 
but uh, the scene where Spike sets up the autopilot, something like 84 hours mm-hmm. until it auto lands on Mars, right? It's like, oh, that mm-hmm. that explains the whole thing. Like, it, it makes it reasonable for, you know, next week we're going to come back and nothing has changed, right? Like, this whole thing didn't happen. Everybody's fine, <laughs> right? We don't talk about it. Yeah, there's a weird like, bit yeah. with the autopilot that I don't know if it's a a translation issue in the dub. Are you guys mm-hmm. watching the dub? Yeah, the dub. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I've actually switched over to the to the Japanese. I don't know oh. why, but I just wanted to see what it was like because I've already seen the dub a couple times. So. Interesting. I was going to see how it goes. But when he turns on the autopilot, it says that it can't be disengaged, which is a strange way to build an autopilot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so I just watched Alien uh, last night, just kind of in preparation of this as mm-hmm. well. And... I one of the I I'd totally forgotten this as well, but one of the things I really liked was that they do the the self destruct computer countdown thing, right? It's like oh, uh, self destruct in ten minutes. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I'd forgotten was that there was a you can cancel this for up to five minutes. Like there's a there are two countdowns. <laughs> one says hey you can you can undo this still, and and there's a counter, and if you come on back quick enough, you can undo this. And then the other countdown is just like, no, no, too late. <laughs> like, this is this is kaboom time. Well, why would you put a self-destruct with a countdown in there if you can't cancel it? It right, doesn't yeah, make just any do it now, sense. <laughs> I guess presumably to leave the ship at, on time, you know, give you a set amount of time to evacuate. But, I mean. You just know. can't undo, yeah. <laughs> I suppose if it's like a... A top secret military ship, maybe, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, okay, yeah, so that no one else can get it. But... Yeah, you set the scuttling charges or whatever. Yeah, the, the Nostromo's not that though. No, right? Like it's it's a civilian ship. The Bebop's not that, right? Like it is it is a fishing trawler. <laughs> also, a bulletproof fishing trawler. Uh, Spike shot the ship multiple. Yeah, his times. strategy when he's fighting the Blob is very. He gasses himself with grenades at one point. (laughs) The flamethrower was clearly the way to go. His his equipment kit, right, like, was that. His his trusty gun, right, that he always has. He had gas grenades, uh, the IR goggles, right, for tracking, and the flamethrower, right? Mm -hmm. Which maybe is a cooking torch. Yeah, he was using that for shish kebab in the beginning, right? (laughs) I have to imagine that's like a welding torch, but, like, yeah, that he's just using for everything. But that being said... Like, yeah, it was the only thing that was effective against the blob. And even then, it didn't kill it. No, it just turned right. it into pudding. <laughs> it's a, a creme brulee, yeah. <laughs> nice that he crust. lightly scorched, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if we're trying to take this episode, like, a round or a campaign or a one-shot of our game... Uh, what would the motivation trackers be here? Four members of the ship are out immediately, so it's really a, I, I suppose a, a one on one on one, I guess, with Spike, the slime, and the world. Correct? Mm-hmm. I guess. What are the now? I think the say. I think the safe thing would be that the slime wishes to consume and survive. Uh, the Spike is just trying to eradicate the threat, and then. The world inherently is... Well, so the, the ship is in transit, and so you could use the, the motivation tracker for the ship maybe as, like, a timer to say, like, mm-hmm. 
you need to survive until the ship makes it to Mars. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that'll that work. Yeah. So uh, to summarize, it's Slime wants to consume and survive. Spike needs to get rid of this threat. And the world is you only have X amount of hours to get to Mars. I, I don't think you'll get a positive review if you bring an alien slime onto the planet. <laughs> One star Yelp review. <laughs> Delivered the wrong lobster. <laughs> so, you know, keeping in with the theme that this is a horror episode. Uh, one of the things you could do, and like we haven't talked about this before, but something you could do with the world tracker or any of the motivation trackers really is keep it a mystery, right? All we know is that this clock is ticking down, but you don't. And and I, hmm, so so I think a way to hint at this, right, is that each time maybe maybe your your motivation tracker has like stages where once you hit a certain number. Something happens, something visible, something something that can be reacted to happens. But you don't know what the ultimate goal of that tracker is, right? If you don't yeah, – trying, trying to impart that horror aspect, that unknown aspect to it might work. Yeah, yeah I love that. It, it reminds me a little bit of the um, – the Omens in Betrayal at House on the Hill, if you've played that. Hmm, I've not. It's a it's not a role-playing game entirely. It's a it's a horror board game, hmm. but you're building out the world as you go. And the world is each time you do something, there is a chance that you advance the the state of the world in a way that starts hmm. the haunting. That's the one where, like, you find an artifact, right? And it yeah. informs, like, your monster that is going to happen, right? Yes. It can be like that. There are, there are a couple of different scenarios, uh, but usually it's basically a crew of survivors in a haunted house. Yep. And uh, at some point, a, a you know, the horror will commence and either some sort of, you know, monster or spirit, you know, generally one of the characters becomes the bad guy and then it becomes kind of an asymmetrical game. Uh, at that point, I think in that one too, like the the betrayal moment, right, kind of changes the rules of the game, mm-hmm. right? Like suddenly, since somebody is now opposing the rest of the players, they have their own set of mechanics. They have a whole different uh, way of playing that the other players don't know anything about, right? And I think that's how you that's how you get a, a spooky feeling, right? <laughs> like when when the players themselves don't know exactly what might happen next. Right. You only know your winning conditions. You don't know your enemy's winning mm-hmm. conditions. Yeah, like so like our motivation trackers here could fit that way, right? Like a, a mystery tracker. A the, the way I'm trying to picturing it is like a slow drip of water, right? Filling a pool, right? And just just worrying what is what happens when the pool fills right? mm-hmm. sort of uh diverging a little bit from the story that the episode is telling but following the the horror theme they they theorize at the beginning that it might be some sort of mutation and mm-hmm. maybe the people who have bitten have some sort of countdown that the mm. mutation will progress. Right. Yeah. And there are, there are all sorts of different kind of iterations of that, right? Like we can 
we can turn into a zombie story, right? We could turn it into a uh, some sort of vampire thrall story, right? You could turn it into a a, a sickness, right? Like a, a contagion story, right? Like all these things are. Yeah, the the comparison that the episode invites for me is Alien, and you are mm-hmm. you're yep. you're you know you've got the chest burster, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a sort of literal timer <laughs> that spells <laughs> your doom. But on the other hand, perhaps players could take actions to slow down the timer, or alternatively, reverse the mm-hmm. timer. Maybe if it's a in an illness, maybe you take you know medicine, or maybe you. Uh, you know, you start a fever or something. Yeah, you, know? you powder um, up your scorpion and choke it down. <laughs> whatever floats that boat, you know. Um, so I think that's that's an interesting concept. But I think if we're tying it to the overall game, um, did we ever decide that we were going to let the players see the timers or see the motivation trackers or the bebop bars or whatever name we're going to give it? <laughs> I do like bebop bars. Uh, the, I, I think generally we've been talking about them as if they were exposed, like entirely. Uh, but you know, yeah, this might be the first time we're talking about them as a hidden, a hidden information game instead. Yeah, it it, it may depend on the scenario. Yeah. So I was thinking about again, Blades of the Dark and their clock. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that the you know the entire party, the entire you know, group of people can see. And as that gets filled in, if it ever gets filled in completely, that's when you're, you know, your real, the real complication happens or the real, uh, the real like downside happens or your, your, your heist is scuffed or whatever. Um, I'm wondering if that is something we need to incorporate so that people can see progression because, uh, right now, uh, just having the concept of bars is one thing. Having something you can literally see fill in or not fill in is different. It's something that at least gives you a progression, you know, <laughs> the line of scrimmage in football, you know? Right. Um, yeah. I, I think, like, your own, your party's meters should always be visible. Like, I think you should always know how close you are to accomplishing the goal you set out, right? Uh, the world... I mean, I, I guess that's the question, right? Should the uh, so this is this is a question that comes up to me in uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I think about often is when you know when my cleric is asking, "Well, who's hurt?" Do I tell them, "Oh, I'm okay, but I'm a little bit weak," or do I tell them, "I'm about twenty one forty fifths healthy," right? Like, I mean, it's <laughs> it's a question of like how much is role play and how much is here's the mechanic right like these meters kind of have that same problem where you can see like so i think it's fine for a party's meters to always be mechanically transparent right like i could see i have this is a 55 meter and we're at 38 right so a couple of good rolls and we could be done right whereas Things like the world or things like your opponents maybe are described narratively rather than, you know, there there may be more flavorful rather than with hard numbers, right? Like, yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm not, I'm not sure which of those actually fits better. I think probably it's contextual is if it's mm-hmm. something that would be knowable to the players, you can describe it as accurately as you want. But if it's... 
if you're doing a heist and you trip the alarm, maybe you just you know the sirens are getting louder uh, rather mm-hmm. than you have twelve and a half minutes before the cops show up and crash your party. Right. Yeah. Bring, bringing back to the football thing, right? Like if you are playing a game of football, you can see the dude on the fifty-yard line, right? And you can see he's running, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you 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 can measure that directly. Whereas, yeah, like in other situations, it may not be as clear. The other issue inherently is, of course, um, sometimes as a GM, you need to fudge things. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. your players are too successful oh, or never. too not successful. Never. We've never fudged <laughs> anything ever. <laughs> uh, my role-playing experience is far more on the side of a player than as a GM. But just speaking from that perspective, honestly, it's fun to be surprised by things and have to deal with them rather than knowing that this thing is coming up and mm. we will we should prepare for it rather than having something that, you know, throws you for a loop and you have just have to react. Right. That ties into what we were saying earlier, where if you know exactly what's coming and when, yeah, let's sit down and plan because we can optimize this. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas there is always a chance that something can surprise us means, oh, we'll, we better roll with it. We better be ready to improvise. Yeah. Again, I think the when you say it's contextual, I think that's probably the best best plan let it let it be something for the gm's discretion uh in terms so just going back to uh the space trucker episode they knew that the mine was dangerous and i think that in that case show them the world tracker they know the mine is going to explode so you know they should they're probably aware of where that's going to be i think a person's motivation is a bit more of a nebulous term they probably don't always know what the villain or their opponent is going to be thinking and what they want now sometimes it's going to be very obvious that they just want to kill you you know with their you know their so-called vicious encounter you know Hmm. um but i think for the most part let let the gm make the decision of what they want to show you i just do like the blades in the dark idea that you can literally have a circle with wedges and you just kind of shade in a wedge when something goes badly and you continue <laughs> to shade them in and once that thing is fully shaded in you're uh, you're you're screwed yeah it's bad and yeah, that anticipation is nice yeah mm. yeah i do i love that sort of sense of impending doom that that can give you i think that's about time for us to start wrapping up any last thoughts on toys in the attic does Jet get a new bonsai tree, or does Faye just give him his bonsai back? It's a real question. <laughs> I mean, I have to imagine after this, like, like Faye gives everything back, right? Like, there's it's not very in character for her, but I don't think Jet's like completely penniless after this episode. I'm pretty sure he had clothes in the next one. <laughs> I'm glad he didn't give her like his arm. Right? Like, <laughs> does it come off? I don't know. <laughs> Something else I noticed. Oh, it didn't come up earlier, but like um, uh, I missed the net cannon. That was another thing that Spike used to try right. to trap this thing. Oh, yeah. Had a cool little like uh, straight out of like uh, – what movie is that? I, I can picture yeah. it. Like, like that that thing with the four spikes or four like ball thing and the end and launches a net. Yeah, it didn't work anyway. Right. 
Also, tying back to the captain's log intro, uh, I love that there was that little Star Trek bridge sound at one yes, point. Yes, I noticed that. You hear the... <laughs> Almost like a submarine thing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, this episode was a pastiche of uh, multiple, you know, major sci-fi products. And it's, you know, it's a love letter to all of them, I think. You know, again, tropes and cliches do, they they suck when they're used carelessly and without, you know, thought. But oftentimes the reason they work is because, uh, you know, they are, they're fun. I mean, plain and simple, it's if you put in the respect and you put in like some actual thought, any cliche can be worth watching. Yeah, for sure. The uh, the trick is to make your pastiche out of things that are good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, with that, we're going to say goodbye to Toys in the Attic with an entire Bebop crew full of uh, dead people, I suppose. And next week, we're going to cover Cowgirl Ed. <laughs> That's not true. Next week, we, we've got a double feature next week. with We're going to cover both parts of Jupiter Jazz. So stay tuned for that. Oh, man. You're going from the sort of like light and fluffy one-off episode to serious backstory. It, it, it's time for some emo. It's time for some grit. It's, uh, it's probably some of the most edgelord we're going to get. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you've got questions, suggestions, or if you're starting your own Bebop Tabletop session, you can reach us on Twitter, at Bebop Tabletop. And that is the lesson.